I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In light of the COVID diagnosis of President Trump and other high-ranking government officials, uh, this week's episode explores the 25th Amendment, which outlines the procedures for presidential succession and disability. We'll explore presidential succession throughout history, as well as contemporary gaps and issues in the middle of the pandemic and the forthcoming election. I'm joined by the two authors of the National Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution Essay on the 25th Amendment, two of America's leading experts on the amendment and on presidential succession, and we're so honored to have both of them. Brian Kalt is professor of law and the Harold Norris faculty scholar at Michigan State University Law School. He's the author of several books, including Unable, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. And David Posen is Vice Dean for Intellectual Life and Charles Keller Beekman, Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. From 2010 to 2012, uh, Professor Posen served as Special Advisor to Harold Hanju Ko, Legal Advisor at the U.S. Department of State. Brian, David, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Well, let's begin with the 25th Amendment itself. Listeners can check out your common statement on the amendment, on the interactive constitution. Brian, what problem was the amendment designed to solve and why was it drafted? So the constitution itself does provide very clearly that the vice president is supposed to step in if the president is gone, if he's dead, if he's removed, if he resigns, or if he is unable, uh, if there's an inability to uh, exercise his powers and duties. The problem is that the original Constitution didn't provide any standards or processes for saying when the president had such an inability. And uh, in addition, it didn't make it clear whether the president would retake his powers if he were uh, disabled and then recovered. And the result was that vice presidents were very unwilling to step in uh, when President Garfield was shot. Vice President Arthur didn't ever assume power, even when Garfield was completely incapacitated. When President Wilson had his stroke and his doctor said he can't do his job right now, uh, and members of Congress prevailed upon the vice president to step in. Uh, it just it didn't happen. And uh, after uh, Eisenhower became president and uh, had some health issues and realized that this setup was unacceptable, that there needed to be standards and procedures, he started the process that led to the 25th Amendment being passed. Uh, and uh, section, uh, section 1 cl clarifies that the vice president becomes president when the uh, uh, president is gone, if he dies, resigns, or is removed. Section 2 allows vice presidential vacancies to be filled. But the, uh, the, the core of it is sections 3 and 4. So Section 3 allows presidents to do what Eisenhower did, which is to say, I am unable uh, right now. I'm transferring power to the vice president. And then to take power back uh, when he says that he's recovered. So we clarify that the president can retake power. And then Section 4 makes it so that 
if the president can't or won't declare that he's disabled, we have another mechanism for that. The vice president and a majority of the cabinet can declare the president unable and um, transfer power to the vice president. And again, the president, uh, we, we want the president to be able to come back. The, the drafters erred very heavily on the side of the president coming back. So um, if the president says he's okay, then he eventually takes power back unless the vice president and the cabinet and two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate say that he's not. Um, and, and even then, he's still in office. He can try again to come back. So it really does solve that problem, plugs that hole that the Constitution left of standards and procedures for a disabled, uh, incapacitated president. Uh, David, in your joint statement about the 25th Amendment, you and Brian note that the amendment was designed to answer a series of questions. First, what happens if a presidential vacancy arises? Second, what should happen if a vice presidential vacancy arises? Third, what happens if the president is unable to discharge the power and duties of the office? And finally, the dramatic case of a president who's unable to fulfill his role but can't or won't step aside. What else should our listeners know about the answers to those questions and how they were unsettled before the passage of the 25th Amendment? Well, I'm guessing that readers will be most interested in sections three and section sections three and four of the 25th Amendment uh, because those are the ones potentially relevant to President Trump's situation. As Brian suggested, section three creates a procedure by which the president can temporarily transfer power to the vice president and then retake it when he or she again becomes able to serve. And section four is the most controversial provision, the longest provision of the amendment about presidential inability. What's notable here, I would say, is section three has not been invoked by President Trump, uh, notwithstanding that he seems to have been taking some serious medication. Prior presidents have invoked section three when undergoing routine surgical procedures, and then within a period of eight hours or so, resumed being president. Uh, I'm not sure, I haven't seen any reports about whether President Trump even considered invoking section three, but given at least some of the uh, news reports about his condition, that seems like something that should have been part of the conversation. And section four um, addresses the more dramatic situation when the president um, does not uh, voluntarily relinquish power for a period of time, but the vice president and a majority of the officers of the executive departments, what that means is, is somewhat unclear, uh, decide that, that the president is unable to serve and uh, initiate this proceeding that whose rules we can get into in a moment. But um, I haven't heard reports of that either. Vice President Pence and various cabinet secretaries thinking about uh, whether President Trump is unable and they should uh, initiate Section 4 proceedings. So right now, Section 3 and Section 4 lay dormant, but they do address a situation when the president is medically or otherwise unable to serve. And depending on what is actually the president's health condition right now and who you believe, um, they, they would seem potentially germane. Well, let's now delve into the, the tough issues uh, raised by the COVID crisis. Brian, you wrote a piece for the Atlantic National Constitution Center Battle for the Constitution site, the very real problem of both Trump and Pence getting COVID-19 at the same time. Uh, and you note that uh, if both the president and vice president were incapacitated by COVID simultaneously, the result could be a full-scale constitutional 
meltdown. Tell us why that's the case and what Congress could do about it. Well, the good news, before I say how horrible the situation would be, the good news is that Congress could, if it wants, solve this situation uh, rather easily. But the, the problem is in the fact that the 25th Amendment provides great procedures for transferring power from an incapacitated president to the vice president, but it makes no provisions for transfers of power past the vice president further down the line of succession. So if the vice president is incapacitated too, the Constitution says, okay, we can have a line of succession for that, and we do, the Succession Act of 1947, but uh, there are no standards or procedures. So the, the situation we were in before the 25th Amendment, where no one was quite sure what to do, and we erred on the side of having no one in charge, uh, would potentially recur. So imagine... Vice President uh, Pence is also incapacitated at a time when the president has transferred power to him. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, is next in line. And if she says uh, Pence is incapacitated, I'm in charge, and he disagrees, we don't have anything in place to resolve that dispute. There's uh, the additional issue that it's highly uh, questionable whether the Speaker of the House and the President pro tem of the Senate can be in the line of succession. And in a in a sensitive moment where the uh, Speaker is of the other party, one can easily imagine members of the President's cabinet, who are the next in line after those congressional officials, objecting to the Speaker uh, taking power. And uh, th that would be uh, a failure of the most basic requirement of a succession uh, framework. That is, we should know exactly and immediately who is in charge at any given moment. Now, Congress could fix both of these problems very easily. The first one, not having any standards or procedures for transfers past the vice president, could be dealt with by adding to the succession statute. Under the Necessary and Proper Clause, Congress could say the line of succession is thus and so, and here are the standards and procedures for determining when the vice president or whomever is acting as president is incapacitated. And they could use something like um, Section 3 or Section 4, allow a voluntary transfer, uh, allow the cabinet to weigh in, allow the Congress to act as a um, uh, body to resolve any dispute over that. They could pass a statute just like that. And then the problem of the constitutionality of the speaker being next in line could be solved by Congress revisiting the succession law, which probably should be done for a lot of other reasons we could talk about anyway, but but to remove both the speaker and the president pro tem uh, and just have the cabinet as the first line, uh, first people in the line of succession, as was the case before 1947. So David Bryan has helped us understand that the biggest legal problem with the current succession law is that it's unconstitutional for legislatures to be in line of succession because, as he argues in his Atlantic article, Article 2 restricts the line of succession to officers, but elsewhere the Constitution distinguishes between members of Congress and officers of the United States. Those constitutional doubts, he says, led Congress to take the president pro tem and speaker out of the line of succession in 1886, but they were put back in in 1947 at Harry Truman's insistence when Congress ignored the constitutional question. Uh, tell us more about this debate about whether or not members of Congress can be um, officers of the United States in the line of secession. 
and whether it's conceivable that they might be taken out in future succession acts and, and also whether the Supreme Court would ever weigh in on this question. Sure. Um, I don't think it's clear at all that the current succession statute is unconstitutional. Um, the best constitutional evidence that it might be uh, is the use of the word officer, as you say, which at points in the original constitution seems pretty clearly to refer to executive branch officials and not to someone like the Speaker of the House who comes third in line after the president and the vice president under the current 1947 statute. However, um, it's only really clear in the original constitution that officers refers only to executive branch officials when joined with the phrase of the United States. And in the presidential succession language, it actually doesn't use that further phrase of the United States, just the plain officers. And at least two other places in the original constitution, officers pretty clearly does encompass legislative officials, uh, also state officials actually. And so um, textually, it's just not obvious that officers cannot refer to someone like the Speaker of the House. Um, I, I therefore, in addition, you know, Congress has considered judgment in 1947 that it would make sense to have the Speaker of the House be next in line, I think deserves some weight in the constitutional analysis. Um, it wasn't a decision Congress took lightly. Uh, it was actually pushed upon Congress by the then president. Um, so depending on your view of how much deference Congress gets, that could cut uh, in favor of the current regime too. That all said, I think there are there are plausible textual and structural arguments that um, that it is um, unconstitutional the way we've designed it. I, I, I viewing uh, uh, the constitutional issue to be somewhat of a wash as I do, or at least very hard. Um, I'm content to fall back on policy considerations and just note that it seems like a bad idea to uh, at least to me to have the speaker of the house come after the vice president in a hyperpolarized age when the parties are so neatly divided on uh, ideological grounds uh, it strikes many americans i think it's very odd that the speaker of the house who could be from another party would take over after the vice president rather than someone more in line with that administration's uh, policy program so uh Bracketing the constitutional issues, it seems to me Congress ought to reconsider uh, the current the current statute just just on policy grounds. And part of it is the oddity of who would take over, and part of it is what Brian suggested about um, teeing up potentially nasty and um, uh, unproductive fights about about who's next in line. You're less likely to have that kind of conflict if it's say the Secretary of State who would come after the Vice President. I think precisely because it would be. Uh, an executive branch official from the same party. So um, so I, I find the policy arguments more powerful than the constitutional arguments um, in favor of some kind of reform. Brian, you also flag the policy arguments in your Atlantic piece, and you note that a sudden transfer of presidential power from one party to the other would be jarring. The new acting president would struggle for legitimacy. Imagine power suddenly shifting from Trump to Pelosi or President Obama to Speaker Paul Ryan, um, which would uh, produce perverse incentives for the White House to cover up or sugarcoat the president or vice president's medical conditions. Tell us about the history of congressional decisions to put members of Congress in the line of secession, beginning with the first Presidential Secession Act, which uh, included the president pro tempore of the Senate, followed by the speaker with no provision to replace a vice president. The second Presidential Secession Act in 1886 
which uh, turned the presidency over to cabinet members in the order of the creation of their respective departments, and then the 47 Act, which put members of Congress back in. Un unpack this history for us and then speculate about whether you could imagine Congress ever taking their own members out of succession and putting it back to the cabinet. So the 1792 Act uh, is very important because many of the members of the Constitutional Convention were part of the Congress drafting that law. And, uh, and many of them objected. Uh, many of them voted against it. Um, and one of the sticking points was that the uh, congressional officials were in line. Uh, the problem was the logical choice uh, other than that, the Secretary of State, was Thomas Jefferson, who a lot of the uh, Federalists didn't like. And so it was partly on those political grounds that they did not have the Secretary of State in the line at all. It was just the President pro tem, just the Speaker. They considered the constitutional objections. They thought that it was okay. And as David mentioned, it does say in the Constitution that the House can choose the Speaker and other officers. The Senate chooses President pro tem and other officers. The, the interesting thing about that is, though, that the uh, Speaker and the President pro tem are the only officers who are members. The other officers are people like the doorkeeper and the sergeant-at-arms. Uh, so it would be odd if the sergeant-at-arms could be in line of succession, but the Senate majority leader couldn't because he's, he's not an officer. So there were two problems with the 1792 Act. One, this constitutional issue, and two, it only had two people in it. And when President Garfield died and Chester Arthur became president, at that moment, there was no uh, president pro tem of the Senate. The Senate had deadlocked and not um, been able to choose one. And the House hadn't convened yet, so hadn't chosen a speaker. So when Chester Arthur was president, there was no one else in line. And if he had died, then this would have been very problematic. So not long after that, the 1886 Act passed, took the congressional officials out of the line of succession, because, in part because of the constitutional concerns, and added the cabinet. Uh, 1947, uh, well, actually 1945, immediately, President Truman said, this is a problem. He didn't like his Secretary of State uh, all that much. Uh, he also didn't like the idea that an unelected official like the Secretary of State would be next in line, someone chosen by the president, rather than someone elected like the Speaker of the House. Um, so he convinced Congress to change it. Of course, uh, they switched it so the Speaker was first, then the President pro tem, and then they had the Cabinet in there too, so we at least had more backup. Um, but that concern about having someone elected next in line sort of um, fades away uh, when the 25th Amendment is passed in 1967, because Section 2 of the 25th Amendment allows the president to fill a vice presidential vacancy by appointment. Now, unlike a cabinet official who's only confirmed by the Senate, a vice presidential nominee has to be confirmed by the House and Senate. But the fact remains that the Constitution chose, by adding that provision, to make the next in line someone who is appointed and not elected. And of course, when Gerald Ford became vice president under that provision. He was not elected. And then he became president under Section 1 of the 25th Amendment when Nixon resigned. So the, the idea that the people in the line of succession have to be elected uh, doesn't make as much sense anymore. But Congress has been very sensitive about the idea of taking its leaders, the speaker in particular, out of the line of succession. Any suggestion of doing that is usually treated not as a 
uh, sober policy recommendation, but as an attack on the speaker, uh, him or herself. And, um, and they jealously guard that prerogative. It's hard to have a neutral principles conversation about it. Uh, but I think that if we're in a situation where the president and speaker are of the same party, which most of the time since 1947 they haven't been, but but often they are, uh, and we have some impetus towards good government reforms uh, in in Congress, there's a thirst for for that sort of thing. If if uh, it's on the agenda, as I think it might be after the current crisis, um, there I think there is a possibility that they could rethink that. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that they would. David, on the policy question, what stars would have to align for Congress to reform the succession? Presumably you'd need a president and Congress of the same political party that wanted to avoid the possibility that in the future the presidency might pass to a speaker of the opposite party. Uh, can you imagine the succession law, in fact, being amended, and, and how should it be amended? Well, I'm, I'm no, um, you know, political strategist. Uh, definitely don't have a, a crystal ball, but but I, I could I could surmise that one scenario in which Congress might be moved to revise the statute is just what you say that um, there's there were there were the intimations of a fight brewing over a succession when the parties were divided across the House and the presidency. Um, the parties become unified in a future period, and they. Uh, change the statute, perhaps with some kind of clause that has it take effect only five years into the future, uh, at which point it won't be clear what the party configuration will be in the House and the executive branch. Um, so that's the good governance mode of reform. A second and more grim vision, frankly, is um, one objection to the current statutory scheme some have raised is that partisan zealots could be motivated to try to kill the president and vice president um, in a situation where they want the speaker of the house who's from their party to take over. Um, if anything like that horrible situation were to uh, uh, arise, thus illustrating dramatically the, some of the perversities of the, of the current scheme, I could also see that catalyzing reform. Brian, now let's turn to another, what happens if a candidate for president dies uh, before the election uh, after the election, but before the electoral college votes, or after the electoral college votes. In the Chiafalo decision, where the Supreme Court unanimously held that states could prevent electors from voting for candidates other than those they're pledged to vote for, Justice Kagan had a footnote saying, nothing in this opinion should be taken to permit the states to bind electors to a deceased candidate. What is the significance of that footnote? And take us through the various scenarios of the president dying uh, before the election, after the election, but before the electors meet and after the electors meet. Justice Kagan's footnote um, turns our attention immediately to the one time that something like this happened, which was 1872. Horace Greeley, the Democratic candidate, had lost the election, uh, but before the Electoral College met, Greeley died. And so the members of the Electoral College didn't know what to do, and the party didn't really coordinate anything. So they scattered their votes. Most of them voted for uh, a variety of candidates, including his running mate, but mostly uh, for others. Three electors voted for Greeley, even though he was already dead. And when Congress uh, assembled to count those votes, the standard they had at the time was that if either house objected to votes being counted, electoral votes being counted, they wouldn't be counted. 
The Senate voted overwhelmingly to count the votes for Greeley. The, the House voted by a very slim margin not to count them. The result was a precedent, but a very weak precedent was set not to count votes cast for someone who's already dead. Um, sometime later, the Electoral Count Act of 1887 uh, changed these procedures, and, and now it's required that if, if a state sends in votes and they're all proper in form uh, and timely, then they are counted uh, unless both houses agree to not count them. So under that standard, the Greeley precedent never would have happened, further weakening that standard. Um, so what would happen if a candidate died b- b- early on? Uh, the party would replace that candidate. Both parties have rules for replacing candidates. The DNC says the members of the DNC choose a new candidate. The RNC has something similar. Uh, so the party leadership would uh, hun- hundreds of people, but would convene and, and choose a replacement candidate. If the ballots could be changed in time, then the ballots would be changed. If the ballots, if the ballots can't be changed in time, then we have uh, people voting for someone who's dead with the understanding the parties would want to get the message out clearly and quickly with the understanding that the electors, uh, if, the, if the dead candidate's ticket wins in a state, the electors in that state would vote for some other particular person. Uh, ideally, it would be the running mate, uh, who after all is selected to be the understudy. Uh, but the party rules don't limit them to that, and they could conceivably choose someone else. Uh, but there is the issue uh, of the electors being bound to cast their votes for whoever won. And so someone could argue uh, president, uh, presidential candidate A was on the ballot, he won. You can't cast your ballots, your electoral votes for presidential candidate B. Um, The Justice Kagan's footnote suggests that uh, states might easily be able to sort of step back and say, oh, well, obviously this situation is different. This isn't someone just going rogue and voting randomly for someone else. Um, But the states would, would probably need to do something. They could do something in advance to make it clear that this would be okay. But Uh, there would be that potential bump in the road. Now, if uh, the electors cast their votes and then someone dies, that we we have clearly provided for in the Constitution. Um, The uh, 20th Amendment, Section 3, says if the president-elect dies, uh, the vice president-elect swears in on January 20th as as president. And if both the uh, president-elect and vice president-elect die, or if if they haven't been chosen, right, that that matters as well, then uh, Congress can have a line of succession for that. And Congress has chosen to use the same line of succession. So the speaker would act as president uh, for the term if they were both dead or until for a couple of weeks until the election was settled, if, if that's the issue. Um, and interestingly there, there's not a constitutional issue because in the 20th Amendment, it it says Congress can say what person would act as president, not what officer. So it could be anyone. Uh, so that at least, uh, although it's still problematic to have the speaker as next in line for other reasons, the constitutional objection would fall away and the situation would be handled, I think, fairly straightforwardly. David, how do you view the significance of Justice Kagan's footnote in casting light on whether or not electors can vote for a, a candidate who's uh, deceased? And and then let's turn to the central question of this podcast, namely issues arising about presidential disability under Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. Great. On 
Justice Kagan's footnote, in that opinion, the court is unanimously affirming the power of states to bind their electors to vote in certain ways. But I view the footnote as a kind of green light, both to states and to individual electors in the unusual and unfortunate situation where the candidate who wins the majority vote in the state becomes incapacitated, not to feel bound to vote for someone who may even be deceased. So it's a kind of common sense carve out to the general principle that states can bind their electors. Um, so that if um, if an elector finds herself in that situation, uh, she can have some confidence that sanctions, for example, aren't going to be imposed on her. Sanctions tend to be mild in any event in those states where they exist at all. The Supreme Court seems to be signaling here not to, uh, not to worry or also to encourage states to uh, reform their laws accordingly. O on the big issue about what, is, what does it mean for a president to be unable under the 25th Amendment, um, the first thing I'd say is it's striking that the 25th Amendment doesn't try to define that term. It is a very detailed procedural scheme that it sets out in Section 4, whereby the vice president with a majority of what's basically the cabinet, uh, if they agree that the president's unable, um, they they can force the issue if the president acquiesces, that, then that vice president takes over as acting president. If the president opposes, it goes to Congress. You need a two-thirds vote in both both chambers of Congress pursuant to a certain timeline. Very detailed on the procedural side uh, and a very high bar, but the term inability is never defined. And my reading of the legislative history of the 25th Amendment is that the framers of it made a conscious decision not to try to define that term. They wanted to leave it open for future uh, professional and in some cases medical judgment and political judgment. Um, I think it's useful therefore to contrast the 25th Amendment Section 4 to two things that it is not. First, um, it's not impeachment. So we have a separate procedure in the Constitution for officials, including the president, who have committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and on that basis, they can be removed. Um, so it's not, it's not a judgment about those kinds of uh, misdeeds. Second, it is not uh, what a lot of other countries use, which is a no confidence mechanism. So in the UK or Canada or South Africa, many other countries, uh, parliament can decide that they have no confidence anymore in the head of state um, because they're performing uh, badly, say. And uh, it also seems clear from the history of the 25th Amendment that it wasn't meant to be a vehicle to let uh, other political officials just express a view that the president's doing poorly, um, you know, botched a trade agreement or gave a terrible speech or what have you, um, is down in the polls. Um, so it's somewhere in between that space of, of um, wrongdoing and bad performance. Um, the paradigm cases are a president who's in a coma um, or kidnapped. That came up in the legislative history and clearly unable to uh, give directions as president. But in a situation where the president might be somewhat impaired because of medical treatment they're receiving, um, it the framers of the 25th Amendment really punted that issue to to the future. Um, and it didn't give guidance. And they thought that people would just responsibly assess and in all things considered fashion, how the president's doing and, and act accordingly. In practice, it seems, vice presidents are very reluctant to, to use section four, um, lest they seem like usurpers. Um, but, uh, but we are left somewhat adrift uh, in interpreting this language because uh, there was a decision not to decide what it means at the time it was written. Brian, 
What have we learned about the limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment in light of situations where vice presidents are reluctant, as David says, to usurp? And in your book, Unable, the Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, um, can you cast any additional light about a situation where the president is seriously impaired by illness but refuses to certify that he's uh, disabled and the vice president also refuses to so certify? If um, if we have a situation like that, I, I think um, David is right. It's a gray area, and the framers of the amendment definitely wanted us to err on the president's side. There's a strong presumption that once you're president, you're president unless something really extreme happens. Uh, and by not choosing a standard uh, and instead choosing a procedure and, and designating certain decision makers, I think the answer is there. Two-thirds in the House and two-thirds in the Senate means substantial numbers of the president's own party would need to lack confidence in his uh, capacity. Um, and that's that's setting the bar very high. So what would have to happen um, in, in those situations where the president is impaired enough for it to be a big problem, but not impaired so much that he wouldn't contest the action so that it would go to Congress, uh, is that members of the president's own party would have to step up. The vice president and the cabinet are reluctant to overthrow, even if only provisionally, the president, um, in part because uh, if if the president objects, um, they're in big trouble. The, the cabinet could all be fired. Uh, the vice president's political career could be over. Um, if, if you shoot at the king, uh, you, you must uh, hit him, um, to paraphrase Emerson. And um, so I, th- I think that there, there would need to be some sort of communication, either public or um, through private channels, from key uh, members of the president's party in Congress, encouraging the vice president and cabinet and saying, look, this, is, this situation is not okay. We know you'd be sticking your neck out if you did this. Um, we we will support the action if you do this, and only then would would they, uh, the vice president and cabinet, be I think comfortable taking that step, knowing that if Congress backs them up, including members of their party, then it would be okay. The alternative is so not okay that I don't think they would proceed without an assurance of that sort. Um, so so I think I think that's the key and. Uh, it would be very hard for that kind of communication to happen. The president gets wind of that. He can he can fire the cabinet, uh, which could cause all sorts of problems besides just the 25th Amendment problems. David, as Brian says, if two-thirds of both houses of Congress gave the vice president and the cabinet cover, they might be inclined to transmit a declaration of inability over the president's objections. There's another part of the Section 4 of the 25th Amendment that says, whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may provide, transmit to the president, pro tempore of the Senate, and so forth, the uh, declaration of inability, should Congress create a body of disability to avoid the situation where the cabinet's reluctant to side with the vice president? Or do we need an entirely different mechanism for disability 
that excludes the vice president and cabinet and puts the decision entirely in the hands of two thirds of both houses of Congress. Great. I, I, I tend to favor a different mechanism. So it's true under section four, Congress could by statute create another body other than the vice president and the cabinet that would make these inability determinations. There was some notion when the 25th amendment was drafted that there would be medical professionals involved in that determination, though not not uh, exclusively on that body, but they'd have perhaps some role in informing uh, political judgment that would be made. Congress has never used that that authority, and um, it would be extremely difficult to compose such a body if it were done in the heat of the moment with a particular president being thought to be potentially unable. Uh, you can also imagine how um, uh, uh, divisive that that could be. I, I and as Brian says, the the main mechanism set out in Section Four, which in which the Vice President is the indispensable actor and the first mover, but has to overcome this serious coordination problem. Where if you're a Vice President, it's crazy to initiate Section Four proceedings unless you've already have some confidence that a majority of the cabinet and supermajorities of both houses of Congress are going to agree with you about the president being unable should the president contest. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's a very difficult uh, burden on the vice president to overcome that coordination problem. And it's an extremely difficult voting threshold in both houses of Congress, higher than the impeachment threshold. You need to get two thirds in the House, not just in the Senate. So what we're finding, I think, is that section four uh, is quickly becoming useless, except in situations that haven't arisen yet, thankfully, where the president is is in no position to contest the judgment. Perhaps you know, a, a coma, again, was the paradigm case that the framers of the 25th Amendment, uh, some of them had in mind. So um, uh, I, they, I favor uh, going the Commonwealth route in the, the no confidence vote, where we take some pressure off the determination of medical, physiological, or other inability, this term that's proven extremely difficult to define uh, and carries a kind of uh, taint, arguably, um, and uh, that presidents are going to be motivated to contest and vice presidents will have a difficulty mustering coalitions around. Um, I think we can learn from other countries who have said, you know, we don't need to find that the president is um, uh, unable to perform the job pursuant to some quasi-medical notion, you know, um, we can just ask, is the president doing a terrible job uh, according to uh, ordinary political and policy considerations? So I'd broaden the inquiry, lower the voting threshold, and uh, introduce a no-confidence mechanism of some sort into, into our system. I think that would be a healthy reform quite separate from these issues about health um, that we're talking about now with the, with the current presidency. Um, and, uh, and, and, and pursuant to that inquiry, um, we can imagine uh, a lot more action around this issue and and, and um, not necessarily being stuck with the president who hasn't necessarily committed impeachable offenses and isn't necessarily completely unable to perform the job, but is just doing a terrible job. I think that it'd be a, a democratic reform that would also um, respond to what we're learning about Section 4 and how it's, um, how it's so limited in, in, in practice. Brian, what do you believe we've learned about the limits of Section 4? Take us through any additional limits that we haven't covered. Some have suggested that if members of the cabinet are not Senate confirmed, then they can't be part of this disability body. Is that right or not? And in light of what limits we've discovered, do you agree with David's alternative of a no-confidence vote mechanism, or would you prefer other reforms? 
I think that um, what people are learning about the the limits of Section Four uh, have always been there. That is, um, the, the framers intended for it to be only in very extreme situations uh, that it that it be used. Whether that uh, decision still holds up, whether we should have a, a lower threshold, as David suggests. I'm not sure. The Commonwealth model is is a little different because our system is premised on fixed four-year terms. Uh, a vote of no confidence would topple, presumably, in a parliamentary system, not necessarily just the leader, but also the, the government. We might have to have a, an election at that point. I don't know if that works here, uh, although, you know, we could translate it into our system and say, we don't have confidence in the president. Um, so hand it over to the vice president and we can fight about, uh, who the new vice president would be and, and it would go through that. I, I do think that there are some reasons to think that we might want to, uh, clarify some things about section four. And the one you mentioned about acting secretaries is, is important. So, um, the, the section four doesn't mention the cabinet by name. It, it talks about the principal officers of the executive departments uh, and another place, executive department, there's a typo. Uh, some copies of the Constitution have a footnote there to explain that it's a typo. But uh, the executive departments are uh, defined by statute. The framers understood this. This, this uh, currently 5 U.S.C. Section 101 lists the 15 departments, state, treasury, um, defense, and so on down to Homeland Security. So it's the heads of those 15 departments, not cabinet-level folks like the trade representative or the chief of staff. So it's just those 15 people. And then who who are the principal officers of these executive departments? What if they're not Senate-confirmed? What if they are acting? A couple of things about that. One, uh, this question arose during the debates about the amendment. And there's a House committee report that says very clearly that acting secretaries would uh, be able to participate. They are the principal officers of the department. They're running the department. Uh, however they got there, they're, they are in charge. Um, but on the Senate side, during a floor debate, Senator By Birch By, who was basically the father of the 25th Amendment, uh, said that he didn't think acting secretaries would participate. So it, it really is unclear. Um, in practical terms, it doesn't really matter that much, though. Uh, first of all, acting secretaries usually are Senate-confirmed for whatever lower-level post they hold that allows them to be acting secretaries. They don't have to be, uh, but typically they are. And currently, we only have one acting cabinet member, Chad Wolf, at Homeland Security. There's some question as to whether he is the legitimate acting secretary or not, um, but he is Senate-confirmed. But here's why it doesn't matter. If he can vote... Um, then, okay, he can vote. If he can't vote, then he'd also be taken out of the denominator. So it's not that you need eight votes. Uh, it's that you need a majority of the, the principal officers. And if there are only 14 of them, okay, then you need eight out of that 14. If there's only nine of them, then you'd only need five. You wouldn't need eight out of nine. You'd need just a majority. And practically speaking, you would almost never have that close of a vote where we'd have uncertainty because it turns on what eight to seven and the eighth vote is an acting secretary. That's not likely to happen. If the president is in a coma, uh, then you're not going to have an eight to seven vote. It'll be probably 14 or 15 to nothing. Um, and 
if the president is in a more ambiguous situation, then as, as we've already said, the, the vice president and cabinet aren't going to um, go forward unless they're confident that the congressional vote would go their way too. And an ambiguous eight to seven vote, if, if that's the uh, facts on the ground that they're facing, they probably wouldn't go forward with that. They would probably need unanimity or near unanimity in a more ambiguous case too. So um, it would be helpful if we had some clarification on uh, that it's the core 15 members of the cabinet and that actings count or that actings don't count or whatever, to figure that out in advance so that we're not deciding while the vote is taking place who counts and who doesn't. Um, but, um, you know, other, other than that, I think the section four is, is working the way it was intended, whether, whether that's, um, whether that limited scope is, is, is good or not is I think a separate question. And I'm not sure it's, it's hard to amend the constitution. I'm not sure that we could uh, change it that easily. David, well, the last word in this really illuminating conversation is to you. Um, the Constitution Center hosted a podcast in February 2017 in honor of the anniversary of the 25th Amendment. And Norm Ornstein and Akilah Mar focused on problems relating to the line of succession, imagining the speaker and the president and the vice president all being killed in catastrophic attacks on America. In light of the COVID crisis, have we learned about additional flaws in the amendment uh, arising from disability of the president or vice president leading up to the election? And uh, what thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with about potential areas of reform? Thanks. Well, I, I guess I'll return uh, the focus to the 25th Amendment just because there are many reforms that might be made. We talked about the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, um, what states might do with their laws binding their electors when the candidate who wins the, the vote uh, becomes incapacitated subsequently. Um, I think there are a lot of practical reforms that might be useful. But on the 25th Amendment side, I tend to agree with Brian that for the purpose for which it was designed, um, uh, it sets a very high bar, it makes it extremely difficult to remove the president, and that makes sense. Um, I already said I favor a broader no confidence mechanism that would allow us to judge the president's whole performance and not just focus on this issue of inability. Um, but within the framework of, of the 25th Amendment, it seems to me uh, the bigger issues are not these technical debates, Brian noted, like uh, do acting secretaries count as principal officers for purposes of the body the vice president needs to get a majority vote from. The bigger issues, I think, are, are more cultural uh, outside of the text of the amendment. So what I'm thinking of here is in all of the pop culture depictions of which I'm aware, where section four is used in uh, TV shows like House of Cards and 24 and movies like The Enemy Within. It's part of a Machiavellian plot by the vice president to essentially steal the presidency from a president who really probably could go on performing the role. And um, uh, therefore, the section four has kind of become tainted in pop culture, at least to those who are following those uh, um, those TV shows and movies um, a, a, as a potential vehicle for um, uh, this, this kind of bad behavior by vice presidents and cabinet secretaries. And in reality, I, I think the issue is, is, is actually the inverse. Vice presidents um, are terrified to use Section 4 uh, because they would have to assemble such a broad coalition to possibly use it successfully against a resisting president. And uh, it's likely to turn out very badly for them if they, if they can't get there. Um, 
so uh, I, I, I hope that culturally people will come to appreciate that given the procedural constraints on section four, um, the risk is, is probably underuse, not overuse, um, quite the opposite of what the TV shows show. And, and second, section three, which we haven't talked about much, allows the president voluntarily to temporarily transfer power to the vice president when he feels he's uh, unable to discharge the duties, uh, including for medical reasons. Um, that has also rarely been used. And in this case, um, I, I just am not clear why President Trump didn't consider doing that um, when he was going to be taking some serious medication to deal with uh, uh, COVID. Um, and there, there's, I assume it's because it's inconsistent with the kind of strong leader image he wanted to project. But uh, I view that as a kind of democratic failure as well. It's It's not weakness, I think, to admit that you're temporarily incapacitated because of a medical issue. You're going to retake the power as soon as you're able. Um, that that wasn't even part of the conversation, as far as I'm aware. Uh, it seems to me to to bespeak an, another pathology here, which is the kind of association, at least in President Trump's mind, was of Section 3 with weakness. Um, I, th I think that's, that's quite wrong. And um, as well. So I, I'm more worried about the kind of cultural and political dynamics around the, the non-use of the 25th Amendment than around its procedural design, which quibbles aside, seems to me pretty well done for what it's intended to do. Thank you so much, Brian Colt and David Posen, for a rigorous, uh, thoughtful, and illuminating discussion of the strengths and weaknesses of the 25th Amendment. Uh, Brian, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Ashley Kemper, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who is hungry for constitutional debate. Thanks so much. Dear We The People friends, to those of you who've taken the time to post reviews. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity and engagement and passion and emails and hunger for constitutional learning of people like you from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. We The People friends, your emails are so meaningful. Please continue to write in and tell me what you think about particular constitutional points raised on the show, this civil dialogue that we're engaged in is, as we all know, more important than ever. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.